0: Today we are looking at the finale of the oracles. Before I get too excited, though, uh, I do have to break it to you that the next section is several woes in a row for the next few chapters, so um, just just know that. Um, But today we are getting to the end of the oracle section that has taken us all the way from chapter 13 through what we are going to look at today, 24 to 27, and those are the chapters we'll look at today. The first two series that we looked at, which were chapters 13 through 20 and then 21 through 23, gave many particular prophecies about the nations and about God's people. Some of these prophecies concerned almost immediate events. Some of them were fulfilled within the year. Some of them were a little bit further out, whether three or ten or twenty years. And then some of them were even farther out. We saw how, even last week, some of the wording in the oracles seemed to look forward to the fall of Babylon. And then even um, before that, you have the fall of Assyria. So you have like some stuff that's gen- generations out. But then we get to this section and in 24 through 27 Isaiah is going to conclude this section of oracles by looking to the end of time and what he has been saying through particular instances and through giving wording that you seem to be able to pinpoint you may not maybe don't know exactly which fall of which nation we're talking about because sometimes it's worded in a way that kind of talks about all of the different falls and the sub- subsequent falls of the nation um but all that kind of goes away in this section and in this Final section here, this third series of oracles, we are going to see that there are going to be a lot of broad, general statements that are still going to be driving home, though, the same truth that has been being attempted to be communicated through all of the more particular prophecies that have happened up till this point. So where you where you had particular and specific things happening before, now you have general truths that are continuing those truths that we saw through particulars are going to continue it all the way through, the, through to the end of time. And these general truths that we are going to be seeing, just as we have all along, talk about God's lordship of the earth and His final worldwide triumph. We have read over and over about God's victories, about God's triumphs, and now Isaiah is looking forward even further into that final day when there is the final triumph of God. And He does this by taking these themes and truth, truths that have been presented in the first two series. And he funnels them and shows where they are leading. That is that is what the point of this final section is. And as he concludes these oracles, he wants to make it plain that it is not God who reacts to the nations, but the nations who react to and are held accountable and are under the judgment of God, not the other way around. This is the finale of Isaiah's repeated message that Judah's hope is not found in the nations, not found in human strength, human resources, or human alliances. And if you remember, that is the historical context of the vast majority of these oracles, is Hezekiah's temptation to go into an alliance with Babylon and other nations. And this whole time, Isaiah's been pleading with him, that is not where your trust and your security is to be found. It is not in these human things. Their trust has to be in God. For all of these human things, these nations that you think are so powerful, are all under God's judgment, and they will all wither at but a word from the Lord. This theme in the finale is developed through two major contrasts, or through two major contradictions. There is a contrast between the city of man and the city of God. So I think it's Charles Dickens is the author, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is, this section is effectively the tale of two cities. So I'm getting head nods, so I got the author right. Um, but that's one way to view these final chapters, 24 to 27, is the tale of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And we're gonna see where the future of these two cities leads. And then the other is, um, the other contrast, I mean, is two songs we're going to have the song of the city of man is going to be silenced. And in its place, we're going to see the rise of the song of the redeemed. So you have two contrasts that are happening in this series. You have the city of man and the city of God, and then you have the song of the city of man, and then the song of the city of God or the song of the redeemed. So you're going to see those two things flowing through this whole section. And in these chapters, we do not see five headers as we have seen mostly clearly in the first two sections, in the first series 13 through 20, you had five oracles and they're basically all just straight up introduced the oracle of whatever place. And there's usually a specific place. And then in the second series, you had the oracle against or of this place. But then a lot of times in the second series is like the wilderness of the sea or darkness or like something kind of vague, but like you kind of know through the wording what it's talking about, but you still have these like specific introductions. Well, that's all gone in this final series. You do, literally speaking, seem to have five sections but the fun part is if you read a bunch of commentators, they're all going to disagree about where the literary features, like what literary feature overrides this other literary feature and like how that affects where the sections break down. So like I'm going to argue for a arrangement of the four chapters here in five sections of where they break down, but that is, it is not a hill that I'm going to die on. Like there's a lot of disagreement about where this section breaks up, but there does, there do seem to be five sections. There's just some difference about like where exactly they start and stop. And the reason for that is that all of these truths that have been shown through the various oracles about specific places and specific times have all been thrown into a blender and being talked about in a way that flows in and out of each other in this final section that's all looking forward to the last day. And you just see themes and words and phrases weave in and out of these different sections. And that's why it's so hard to make a distinct separation about these five sections. Is they really just all flow into each other. It's, it's almost as if, and I would argue it is, that this whole section is supposed to be read together. 24 to 28 is intended to be the finale, one final message that brings to conclusion all that the oracles have been saying up to this point. So as we look to this um, four chapters and as we try our best to look at five different sections, and again, keeping in mind that these sections are not divinely ordained, um, but just for the sake of clarity, the first section that I'm going to be looking at is chapter 24, 24 verses 1 through 20. And you'll see, like I mentioned earlier, that there is no header. All you see is, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth. You don't have an oracle against. Uh, But what I'm going to argue, and what you'll see throughout this wording here, is that just as the first section in each of the two series was about Babylon, so you also have Babylon here. And you'll see why. But here in chapter 24, verses 1 through 20, what you're going to see is that the specific nations that were all mentioned in 13 through 23 are gathered up into a single whole. There is no longer Babylon, there's no longer Damascus or Tyre or Philistia or Egypt that are being confronted by God, but it is now the earth itself. And this is repeated 17 times that the earth itself is under judgment. And we're going to see in the wording here as you as you read through it, this earth is basically condensed for the sake of basically clarity of message, that like the whole earth that's being under judgment is put in under the picture of a city, a city that is under judgment. And as we look to this this chapter, I'm just going to read a little bit just for the sake of context, but starting in chapter 24, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with the master. And it goes through this series of contrasts. You're basically saying, no matter who you are, no matter how much wealth you have, no matter how much prestige you have, no matter how powerful you feel you are, you are all under God's judgment. Nobody is excluded from God's judgment. That's what this contrast here, all this series, the, the buyer and the seller, the creditor and the debtor, everybody is under God's judgment. The earth, starting in three, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. Again, the highest people, the most powerful, the people who would think that maybe they're excluded from God's judgment are all under his judgment. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, and the vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh, and the mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it the wasted city again you see this the whole world judgment being brought into this city and as we just read the song of the city is being silenced every house is shut up so that none can enter there's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine all joy has grown dark the gladness of the earth is banished desolation is left in the city the gates are battered into ruins for thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten as when the gleam, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done in this wording, what I would argue the point being made, and why there is no specific city mentioned, is that this is the concept of Babylon that we have talked about in the first two series. The concept of Babylon that represents rejection and rebellion against God, the city, the world, all the inhabitants, those who live opposed to God, and refuse to obey his law, refuse to honor him and acknowledge him, but are in fact rejecting him with their pride. All of that rebellion is under his condemnation. And as we've seen in the first two series, the promise that Babylon will fall. So here we read that the final Babylon, no specific name because that's not the point. It's the rejection against God. All those who are living opposed to God, that city, those who choose to live in that city will fall. And their song is silenced. In thirteen one through fourteen twenty-seven, God promised that Babylon would fall. And that's the first series. He promised that Babylon would fall in words that seem to apply to the actual Babylonian Empire, but also to the end of time and to all enemies of God. And then in the second series, in twenty-one, one to ten, we we read Babylon is fallen, in words that seem to apply to the multiple defeats of the Babylonian Empire and her final fall. And then here this theme returns. As we read, not of Babylon, but the earth, the wasted city, the nations, all people and nations, no matter how powerful, as you read in the first few verses there, everyone is under the judgment of God. The final Babylon has fallen. And this judgment here in 24 is framed in terms of God's judgment of the flood in Genesis 6 through 9, and also God's judgment at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. The result is that the city of man, which is simply the newest tower of Babel, which is extended from a tower out into a city, into the world. But this city, this tower, has become wasted and broken down. And we see this language here, this language that reminds us of the flood and of Babel. And we're going to see even creation language as well. We see this, um, if you look forward a little bit in the chapter, you look to verse 18. My Bible, let me flip just one page here. Uh, but as you look to verse 18, you see the phrase near the end of verse 18, For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth trembled. That windows of heaven are opened phrase doesn't happen very often in the Bible, and it's being used on purpose. It, it was used in the flood account when the waters are being brought to bring judgment. Just like in the flood account of Genesis 7, and we see that in Genesis 7:11. And then we also see the repetition of ideas of desolation and emptiness throughout this chapter. And that would also bring the flood to mind, the emptiness of that image that is being formed through the flood, the fact the whole earth covered, desolation, emptiness. It's the same imagery that's happening here. And then we also read of an everlasting covenant that the inhabitants of the earth have broken. And when you follow the wording here and you realize that this isn't talking to Judah or Israel per se, so what is the everlasting covenant that, that that would be being broken here? This brings to mind the everlasting covenant that we read in Genesis 9. The rainbow was an everlasting covenant. After the flood, God made a covenant with Noah. And part of that covenant was that mankind would be held accountable for bloodshed. And what do you read here again and again? We're going to see it multiple times throughout these four chapters. But the earth reveals the bloodshed that has happened on it. Reveals the brutality. The violation of the everlasting covenant. At a bare minimum, the murder and the deception and the destruction and the oppression. That is what the earth is being held accountable. Those who have lived in rebellion against God are being held accountable for. And as you think forward to the teachings of Jesus and you think like, okay, well, is it strictly murder that people held accountable for? Jesus, Jesus said if you even hate somebody, then you have murdered them in your heart. And then we read elsewhere later, if you call somebody a fool, in other words, if you are willing to talk and act to somebody in a destructive, demeaning, oppressing way, you have caused effectively bloodshed. That is, all these things, as we read again and again through the book of Isaiah, and especially in these chapters, that is what humanity is being held accountable for, what the earth is revealing as the just judgment of God that is being brought down in response to. We also see the word in chapter 24, verse 1, that he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. The the word scatter, admittedly, is used in many places in the Bible, but one of the places it is found is in Genesis 11, when God scatters. The peoples, as part of the judgment of the Tower of Babel. So I think this word is purposely being used here to bring that to mind as well. And we also see um, that the word wasted, um, sorry, let me get the reference for that one. Okay, apparently I don't have it in my notes, but um, the word wasted is in um, the chapter here, and here it is, verse 10. The wasted city. Is broken down. The word "wasted" is actually the same word that is used in Genesis one two and is translated there as "without form." The world was without form, and what is purposely being used here for in this chapter is we have this flood language, we have the judgment of Babel language, we have the earth before creation language. You effectively have this this destruction, this judgment on evil that brings the earth back to a place prepared for recreation is the point of all the wording that's happening here in this chapter. So then the judgments, the judgment here of God on the final day will be as extensive as the flood and as direct as God's judgment on Babel and it will cause the earth to be ready to be remade as a new creation. And we'll see that here and we'll see that again at the end of Isaiah. In the midst of this destruction, as the song of the city is silenced, we read in 14 through 16a, the song of the redeemed people. And this is in fourteen to sixteen. They lift their voices, they sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west, therefore in the east give glory to the Lord, and in the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. You notice this build of where the song is coming from. First it starts um, over the majesty of the Lord they shout from the west, and then therefore in the east, and then in the coastlands, and then from the ends of the earth. In other words The voice of the redeemed, the voice of praise on this day will come from all people, from all areas, from all tribes and nations. There will be those from all over the world that will be singing in praise of God. In 16 through 20, though, verses 16 through 20, we read that Isaiah is unable to rejoice in the face of this destruction that we see, as you read starting in the second half of verse sixteen, after the the singing and the rejoicing and the glory of the righteous one, we read this. But I say, and I think this is Isaiah breaking in. Um, but I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed with betrayal. The traitors have betrayed. We see here that Isaiah is effectively interjecting in and saying, Woe is me. I I, I don't feel like I can join this song quite yet. And I think what's happening here is that he is seeing the destruction that is to come and continue until that day. He sees the betrayals and the deceptions, the pain and the oppression that will keep going on and on until that final day. And in desperation, he cries out. And I think that 17 is a continuation of what he's saying. He says, Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. I think what we have here is a a cry of pain from what he sees that will continue to happen and also a plead for repentance. You have uh, what, in, by and large in this whole chapter, you've had a plural, you've had the earth, you've had the inhabitants, you've had the nations, the peoples, but then you have in Isaiah's cry here, you have a singular, O oh, inhabitant. He is in effect crying to anybody who will listen. Look at what is coming. You are under God's judgment, if you continue to live this way, I'm begging you, turn. I think that's what's what's happening here and why he feels that he is unable to join in the song. Because the song is on that day. He's like, I'm living now. I see the pain now. I see the, the oppression now. Turn away. Repent. In effect, I think what is happening is that as in chapter 6, when he saw God, he saw God as the king, he saw God as the judge, he said, woe is me. I think when he sees this final day and he sees God as the king and as the judge, on the final day, he says, while I live now, I'm going to say, woe is me and woe is you if you don't repent, that I will live in that way. And then, on the final day, then I will sing with the song. So I think and I appreciate that even in this, this chapter that looks to the final day that we see Isaiah's heart here. And I want to pause there and just think about his way, as application. All this stuff that we're reading about, about the end of time, the judgment that comes, the reward that comes, I I beg that we also have the heart of Isaiah. That we live now. That we live in light of that. And that we also plead for those around us as well that we see the inhabitant of the earth. That is, in effect, the first section, though, and I want to move on for the sake of time to the second section. The section, second section is the final three verses of chapter 24, um, verses 21 to 23. And this section I titled, for the sake of a title, um, The Lord of Hosts Reigns, which is just taken from part of it. And it's taken from uh, the middle of verse 23 there. Uh, but in this in this next section, starting in verse 24, 21, we see the beginning of a series of on-that-day phrases. If you glance through, you can do this while I'm talking. If you flip through and look at the rest of uh, 25 to 27, you're going to continue to see on that day, in that day, you're going to see that phrase repeated throughout the rest of this series. And what's also kind of cool, and we'll see this more later, But if you think about Revelation 4-5 to and you think about the throne scene and you think about the elders there and the songs that just keep interjecting into the scene, you're going to see that same exact thing here through the end of 24 and then 25, 26, and 27. You're going to see a series of in-that-day statements that keep getting interrupted by this song. And that's on purpose. Because you have the events that are unfolding and you have the on-that-day and then you have the praise of God from his people glorifying him for what he is doing. And I think it's purposely very similar and purposely picked up and echoed in Revelation four to five. But in this section, um, this section being the second second section of this series, it continues the theme that was seen in the second section of each series so far, and this theme is timing. In the second section of the fir- or of the first series, which was twenty or sorry fourteen. Verses 28 through 32. In that section, Philistia sought to bring about an alliance and rebel against Assyria when they felt the timing was right. But God told them that they were completely mistaken and that they were going to be destroyed. They thought that the snake had fallen. He said, well, yeah, the snake's fallen, but there's going to be a fiery serpent that comes up after it. And you have read this completely wrong. He tells them their timing is wrong and they will be destroyed. And then in 21, 11 to 12, which is in the second series, Edom inquires of the watchman, what time of the night? Which is which effectively means, when will the morning come? Waiting, looking for timing. And then here in 24, 21 to 23, we read and see the arrival of God's timing. And I think that's why that on that day, I think that's why this phrasing starts here. God's time has arrived. What you thought you could bring about, what you thought you could read as the timing and form your alliances and cause to happen... Um, what you've been longing for and looking for and asking the watchman for has arrived. God's timing is here. And on that day, we read, the Lord will punish the host of heaven and the king of the earth. He will punish rebels, both human and angelic, in their respective fields. We read, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. He will give them the home field advantage and he will still win. And then we read that they will be gathered together as prisoners into a pit. And we read that they will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Because of this because this wording purposefully mirrors what just came before it, if you look at the reading here, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit, and they will be shut up in a prison, and then after many days, they will be punished. It is almost a mirror of itself, because you see a repetition of prisoners and prison, and then pit and... Um, or sorry but they have punished and punished, prisoner and prisoner. You have like this repetition of many days on that day. Um, it is unclear if what is meant is that they will be imprisoned, shut up for many days, and then punished, or if the second half is just repeating and clarifying the first on that day to clarify that on that day will be after many days. So if all of that made sense. Uh, but basically what's happening is it, it's uncertain if the wording here it means that um, when God does this on that day, does the on that day begin a series of like he's going to shut up the prisoners and then after a while he's going to release them and have a final victory? Or is all that's being said is on that day, which will be after many days, God will shut them up and judge them. So because the wording is unclear, that is where I'm going to leave that. Um, the concept of the pit and of imprisonment is developed much further in Revelation, which is something we just don't have time for today. So uh, we're just going to leave it there, um, save that for another day. Uh, but either way, the point being made is that all rebellion will be put down and the Lord will reign. The sun and the moon, we read in uh, 23 here, the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. The, the words confounded and ashamed actually effectively both mean ashamed, but what the, what the English has done here is exactly what the Hebrew did, is they basically, the Hebrew used two different words for ashamed, so the English tried to do the same thing. Um, and what's being intended here I think, is that the sun and the moon were often the highest gods of the surrounding cultures. And what's saying is that these supposed gods will be ashamed and acknowledge that He alone is the Lord. He will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. What is happening here, I think, is coronation language. This is language that is echoed and expanded in Revelation 4 5. And just like I mentioned earlier, like we saw, like we saw there, or sorry, like we see there is just like we see here in that we have this coronation, this elder language, and then all of a sudden this song breaks out. And I think that's what leads us into the next section here because in uh, chapter 25, you have effectively the breaking in of another song. And this song is seen in 25 verses 1 through 5, and then also again in verse 9 at God's great banquet. And in this chapter we see that the humble and the faithful are exalted, the prideful are made low, and death is swallowed up forever and this chapter 25 uh, which is the entire the, the entire chapter is the section uh, but this third section con- concludes and continues the theme that has been brought into the third section of each series so far and this theme is refugees or helping those who are poor and needy and the call to look to God to one day right all wrongs. And this section brings it to its conclusion. The hope of 16, which in chapter 16 you had the refugees being Moab, and in 15 to 16, Moab was called to find their hope in God. And then we had in 21, 13 to 17, we had refugees in Arabia who tried to get help from each other, but the Lord said, that's not going to work out for you. And then here in this final section, we have that God is bringing the hope and the desire of the poor and needy and that he will put down all the prideful and all the oppressors. The hope, in other words, of chapter 16 becomes a reality in these verses as the faithful, the just, and the righteous kings, or sorry, the righteous king ends all oppression. In fact, I want to read Just briefly, a couple verses from chapter 16. And I don't unfortunately have time to walk through how this is shown in this chapter, but I would challenge you to listen as I read this. And then if you want to, you can be looking around and skimming in chapter 25 here as I'm talking about it. But almost every single phrase of these couple verses from chapter 16 is picked up and fulfilled or talked about or continued in some way in chapter 25. But from chapter 16, we read, Give counsel, grant justice. Make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteous. Almost every single phrase of these verses finds a parallel in chapter twenty-five. We talked about in chapter sixteen how those verses I just, just read are probably best to read as a plea from Moab to turn from her pride to God. We also saw in 22, in the second series, that the people of Arabia looked to their own resources but were promised destruction. Here in 25, we see and read that the Lord has always been with his people in their trouble. And one day he will end all troubles, all oppression, all pain, all tears, and even death itself. We see this through the flow of the chapter. In chapter 1, or sorry, in 25 verse 1, we read, "O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you; I will praise you for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure." This be, this chapter begins here by promising and saying that his plans, though they were formed of old, they are faithful. They are sure. They are a place that you can put your trust and your hope. And then we read in the next couple verses that he will humble the great city, even that city that is strong. Even that city will bow down to him. In two to three, we read, for you have made the city, and I think the city refers back to chapter twenty-four, the world city. You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, and the foreigners' palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. I think there's a translation thing going on here in the next verse, and I'm not the only one. A bunch of commentators are um, making the same point, but in verse three, therefore strong peoples should be people. Therefore strong people will glorify you and the city of ruthless nations will fear you. Because the point being made is that this city of man will be brought to the place where it is forced to bow the knee and acknowledge that he is the Lord. I think the the plurals obscure that a little bit. Um, They actually are singular in the Hebrew. Uh, But then, as you continue in verses 4 through 5, we see that God has always been a stronghold to the poor and needy. The oppressor, the enemies of God, will not ultimately prevail we read for you have been a stronghold to the poor a stronghold to the needy in his distress and a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat for a breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall like heat in a dry place you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud so the song of the ruthless is put down and then we read in 6 1 through 8 that God will provide for all peoples from all nations a banquet and a place of peace for those who have placed their trust in him and waited for him. He will swallow up death and wipe every tear from their eyes and take away all their reproach. We read this in the beautiful scene started in verse 6. On on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. There are multiple ways to read this, but I think the next phrase clarifies it. He will swallow up death. Seven started, he will swallow up, and then it uses vague terms, and then eight clarifies, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And then just as we've seen already multiple times, verse nine breaks in with the song, and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And then in 10, we read that the prideful, represented through Moab, will be brought low and will not be invited to the banquet. We see again this juxtaposition of the city of man and the city of God the fate of those who have placed their trust in the Lord and the fate of those who through their pride and through their rejection have refused to do so. I don't think that these last verses here are specifically an attack on Moabites per se, but an attack on the Moabite heart. The Moab represents pride and rejection of God, refusing to turn to him. And I think we get this, and this is shown clearly through the next section um, which which starts the, the fourth section here of this series, which is um, a lot of translations have the song of Judah or um, the ESV here as you keep him in perfect peace. Um, but I think what we see here is in response to what was just said about Moab, you have a response again of song. And in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks, Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. In response to what was just said at the end of chapter 25, in response to this, we see another song. The quotation marks in the ESV end at verse six. Some translations have the quotation at the end of the chapter. A lot of a lot of translations don't even bother with quotations because they're not sure. And as with many things in this section, it, it's unclear. Um, I would argue that that's not a bad choice to say verses one through six are a good place to stop with those quotations because I think those are written and sung in direct response to what was just um, read at the end of verse 25 because um, you see a repetition of language. Um, when, when you read about this um, humbling of Moab and trampling underfoot and then in, in verse 12 of chapter 25, the high fortifications of his walls, he will bring down and lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. You have a lot of key words from those few verses about Moab and about tearing down the city, which, again, it's it's not about Moab. Like Verse 12 kind of drives that home. It brings it back to the city. It's about the city, the city of man, those who rebel against the Lord. And then you have, like, the walls were just torn down of that city, and then you open up in 26, he sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous... Uh, Nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace with my estate on you. And then it talks about trust. And then it talks about he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it to the ground, casts it to the dust and the foot tramples it. exactly what just happened to Moab being used as a picture of the city. He now extends and talks to and about the city. So again, I don't think it's about Moab. I think it's about pride. I think it's about rejection of God. And I think that these few verses here are a response to that. And I also want to point out, as I have with the other ones, that as the, the section in the fourth spot in this series, this is fourth, fourth section, which is all of t- chapter 26, it completes the theme that has been present in the fourth section of, all the, of each series so far, and that is the choices of God's people. In chapter 17 through 18 in the first series, the northern tribes placed their trust and their alliance with Syria, and that led to their destruction. And then in chapter 22, in the second series, Judah placed her trust in her her own self-sufficiency, refusing to look to God even as the city crumbles. But here in 26, we see that the people are now perfected, finally, as people of faith who place their trust in God. And they are dwelling in peace within the strong city with their mind stayed on God. This chapter as a whole is an encouragement for Judah to keep faith, to keep trust in God, because God has always kept his faith with Judah. We see this theme as soon as verses 2 through 4. Um, again, open the gates that the righteous nation may keep, that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, For the Lord is an everlasting rock. And the picture being used on purpose is he is unchangeable, unchanging. He is trustworthy. He is a rock that cannot be moved. But you notice the repetition in just those three verses, two through four, about faith and trust and how this is something we should be doing forever, stayed on, our minds stayed on God. In verses five through six then, As we continue through this section in verses 5 through 6, we see that this great reversal, this great reversal of God bringing down the city and of bringing into his city those who trust him, this great reversal will happen on that day. The seemingly powerful ones who oppose God will be brought low and the poor and needy who trust in God will be exalted. And then in verses 7 through 11, we dwell more on the present. And 7 through 11 read kind of like a proverb. The word judgment in these verses here is probably best read as discipline. And I get that from um, later on in the verses as um, you see the word discipline is actually in verse 16, when your discipline was upon them. Um, But the word judgment is kind of a broad word. It means like God's decrees, God's law in a way, but also his declarations. And when he does bring down judgment or discipline, Um, So it's a purposely broad word, but how it's being used in these verses seems to be the idea of discipline. And we read in these verses on that God directs the path of the righteous through his teachings and discipline. I think kind of both, like the the nuances here of the judgments is purposely being used here. That like it's God's teachings and his decrees, but also his discipline that he brings into his life. All of this is being used to direct the path. We read in verse 7, the path of the righteous is level. You make the path, or sorry, the way of the righteous Um, You make it level. And then in the path of your judgments is like this path of teaching and discipline. And then um, we read that we are to wait for him, to seek him, and desire him as he leads us. And then we also see that God's judgment or discipline is intended to teach and to humble the wicked. We read in uh, verse 9, For my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness." If your favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, which I think a way to read that is, in the land of ease, he deals corruptly, and he does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. I think what's being said in these verses is that the, the teachings and the discipline and the judgments of the Lord are intended to teach They're intended to teach us, and they're also intended to teach those who rebel against God to draw them to him through correction. And then we read that in the land of ease, they don't feel a need for God. I think what's being said there and why it's part of this conversation, it sounds a lot like what Jesus says later when he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter heaven. When we don't feel like we need God, we're not going to turn to him, is I think the point of what's being said in these verses. Your hand is lifted up, we read, but they do not see it. And then we read, let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. I think that probably is better translated, they will see. In other words, those who refuse to see and acknowledge the hand of the Lord will, on that day, see. And they will be ashamed and consumed. And then in 12 through 26, which is the rest of the the chapter, we dwell on the theme of dependence on God. And this section starts, O Lord, you will ordain or establish peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all of our works. And I think that basically summarizes the rest of the chapter, that phrase there, you have indeed done for us everything, basically. Like, we finally realize that this is completely you. We have... Nothing to contribute to this. Like, we haven't actually done any of this stuff on our own. Um, Because we see in verses 13 to 15, these focus on how God has protected his people. Many lords we read, um, we read in 13, "'Other lords besides you have ruled over us, "'but your name alone we bring to remembrance. "'They are dead, they will not live. "'They are shades, they will not arise. "'To that end, you have visited them with destruction "'and wiped out all remembrance of them. "'But you have increased the nation, O Lord. "'You've increased the nation, you are glorified.'" You have enlarged all the borders of the land. In other words, this is kind of a summary of all the oppression that his people have gone through. Say so we have had many lords or oppressors over time, but you have brought down all of them and you have preserved us. You have kept us through all of this. And then we read in 16 through 21, this focuses on how God will one day fully deliver his people and punish all wickedness. 16 to 18 amounts to an omission that we cannot deliver ourselves or bring any deliverance. We read in 16, uh, starting there, in distress, they sought you. And I think they refers to like the previous people of God. They sought you. They poured out whispered prayers when your discipline was upon them. And then kind of bring it forward to today, like a pregnant woman who rises and cries out in her pangs when when she is near to giving birth. So we were because of you, O oh Lord. We were pregnant. We rise. We, we, all of our effort was going in. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to the wind. We've given birth to nothing. We have accomplished no deliverance on the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. All of our effort has resulted in nothing. No enemy will fall through our own strength and no deliverance has been accomplished through us. And then 19 interjects, unsurprisingly, with a shout of praise. And this this is a praise for the hope of the bodily resurrection. And this, I just want to point out, is one of the few verses in the Old Testament that basically directly talks about the bodily reselec- resurrection, which is talked about a lot more in the New Testament. Not very often in the Old Testament, though. Because you have, in 16 through 18, you have effectively this admission that we can't do anything. We've tried really, really, really hard. And it has accomplished wind. Nothing. And then in interjection here, in the midst of this hopelessness talking to i think basically judah talking to herself talking to all who have con- all who have gone before your dead shall live their bodies shall rise you who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy for your dew is the dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead notice how this contrasts as well in 14 the fate of the enemies of god they are dead they will not live They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction. I think what is being said here is that the people who have put their trust and their hope in God, though they have been through persecution, though they have been oppressed, though they have died, they have hope that they will be with God, that He will bring them back, and that they will dwell with Him forever. And then in 20 to 21, it finishes the statement by looking to the day of judgment and combines the idea of protection and deliverance. Because, again, those are the two themes that the people are admitting. Like, we haven't been able to protect ourselves. We haven't been able to deliver ourselves. And then at the end, we bring it all home and say, God will protect and deliver. And um, we see this in wording similar to Noah and his family being shot inside the ark. And the people hiding in their homes during the final plague. We read in 2021, "Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. For behold, the Lord is coming out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it again. This bloodshed, this violation of the everlasting covenant, to disclose the bloodshed on it, and you will know, and and it will no more cover its slain. I think the wording purposely here is similar." to Noah and his family being shut inside the ark. He said the door is shut behind you. And then it says in your chambers, um, purposely kind of reminding about the hiding in the homes of the final plague. And then God's people are protected while God's fury passes by. The passes by is another allusion to the Egyptian plagues. I think this is all purposely saying here that just as he always has, God will protect and deliver his people in the day of the final act of judgment. And then as we continue and go into the final section here, the fifth section, which is chapter 27. In this section, God's people and his city appropriately turn into a pleasant vineyard. I'll get to verse one in a second, but in verse two, we see, in that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. We've talked about a vineyard a few times. Remember how in chapter five, it was a vineyard that God lovingly and tenderly cared for and did all that he could do and end up giving him useless inedible grapes, and what's interesting here is I think in, you might see this in a little one number by your pleasant vineyard in your um, Bible here many Hebrew manuscripts say a vineyard of wine I think the the purpose there is to play on chapter five and say the grapes that had been unuseful unuseful and inedible are now good grapes useful for wine this vineyard that was exiled and destroyed has become a pleasant vineyard. We see a a reversal here. And this theme um, that we have seen in the final section of each of the series so far, this theme of one world, one people, one God, comes to its conclusion here in this final section of this series. In chapter 19, in the final section of the first series, we saw that even Assyria and Egypt will one day worship God. And then in 23, we saw that even the wealth of Tyre will one day be used to worship God. And here in 27, we return to the Egypt and Assyria motif as we see God's pleasant vineyard gathered from all places. And all of this is made possible because of what happens in verse 1. All this is made possible because of the victory of God. God slays the Leviathan or the serpent of the dragon. I'll read verse 1. In that day, God, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. There are three adjectives that are used of God's sword. It is hard, it is great and it is strong. The Leviathan, through the kind of the wording of the Hebrew here and how it's paralleling each other, the Leviathan has three names: the Leviathan, the serpent and the dragon. Well, the hard and the great and the mighty, or sorry, the hard and the great and the strong sword, three adjectives meet the three names of the Leviathan and slay him. That's what's happening here, the purposeful parallelism of the threes. And this Leviathan, this serpent, this dragon, this imagery was common in the surrounding cultures for the agent or the agents of chaos, depending on which nation you're looking at and what their uh, kind of world origin story is and how the forces work. Um, But this Leviathan serpent dragon imagery is the agent of chaos, which fights in opposition to the gods. So here we read that this serpent imagery, this Leviathan imagery is what needs to be slain on that final day. Here, the word for serpent is the same word that was used for serpent in the garden. And we see this dragon or this serpent, this beast imagery repeatedly in Revelation. The agent of chaos, the Leviathan, who is the devil, or that ancient serpent, as Revelation calls him, the enemy of God's people, will be defeated. And because of this victory, God will gather his people into his forever pleasant vineyard under his watchful and tender care he will no longer have any enemies that he needs to protect them from because they will take root and blossom and fill the whole earth in fact we read in the wording here he says in that day a pleasant vineyard sing of it i the lord am its keeper every moment i water it this con- continual ceaseless care lest anyone should punish me. i keep it night and day i have no wrath would that i had thorns and briars to battle i would march against them I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. We have this almost like overprotecting desire. Like I would that I still had enemies, but oh wait, I just conquered all of them. So there are no enemies. And if there were, I would slay them or let them make peace with me. Which I think is the theme we've seen all through Isaiah. You may reject God or you may make peace with him and acknowledge that he is the Lord. And then 7 through 11 explains the vineyard imagery even further and explains what he has done to his vineyard. It says, Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, or I actually like here, if you look at the footnote that you probably have in your Bible, or by driving her away. So by driving her away by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, The guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones and the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces and no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. So we see this explanation of how God has taken care of his people. He did not strike his people like the other nations. He exiled and he punished them, yes, but he did this as a means of discipline, which is something we just read about in the last chapter. Um, He did this as a means of discipline to bring them back to himself through such judgment. For the sake of cleansing, their guilt will be atoned for, and the full fruit of their atonement and the removal of their sin—that they will that um, they will finally break down. The, sorry, the full fruit of the removal of their sin will be that they will finally break down every idol and will fully worship God. They will be cleansed and atoned. Um. But as we see in 10 through 11, the city of man, those who reject God, they will become the wilderness. So we see kind of this like difference here of God's care of the vineyard versus those who have rejected God and who are not part of his vineyard. The vineyard is those who he disciplines and who, even though he punishes, he does so for the sake of bringing to himself. And then there's those who reject him through their lack of knowledge. And to read through the 10 and 11 there, basically all that wording is to say that this is a desolate city. That is punished. There's no care and compassion given to God like He has given to those who put their trust in Him. And I just want to pause here. I'm trying not to do this too much as I go through all these opening chapters of Isaiah. I try not to jump ahead to Christ too much as the book of Isaiah builds and continues to build this message about the Messiah and the coming Christ. But because this chapter is kind of weird and confusing in the vineyard imagery, I just wanted to take a moment to say the exile ultimately is not what caused the atonement. Because like you can read the words and if you don't understand like what's happening there or catch what's trying to be said, it's easy to miss it. But what he's saying is by exile, you contend with them; he removed them. So basically, this like this discipline, this judgment for the sake of plen- of cleansing by this, by this type of discipline, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. By this type of cleansing, judgment for the sake of removing guilt and providing atonement. The ultimate fulfillment of this that we see is not in exile. The ultimate fulfillment of this was in the cross, judgment for the sake of atonement and for cleansing. Christ took the judgment for the sake of offering atonement and cleansing. And in fact, his being crucified, as we read, outside the city, was in effect him kind of reliving the exile and taking the punishment for us. So I just want to jump there just real briefly to kind of make that connection for us in this chapter here. Um, But as we close this section here in chapter er, uh, verses 12 through 13, in the final two verses of this series, we read that in that day, God will gather people from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. And this was basically the boundaries of the promised land that was given to Abraham in Genesis 15. And it here represents the, the gathering of all people from wherever they are. Because um, obviously at that time, like the promised land isn't what the people are in. But he's saying at that time, on that day, from everywhere, I will gather you. A great trumpet will sound and people from all nations will come to worship the Lord on his holy mountain. So that is the end of this final section of this final series in the oracles. There's a lot of end time stuff here that we can get distracted by as we try to figure out what exactly is meant and how it works together, especially with other passages from the Bible, some of which I mentioned. But I want us to leave with the same thought that I think Isaiah was trying to instill in the leaders and the people of Judah. Um, With all this end time stuff, this was all part of the overall message of 13 through 27. And it was all a desperate repeated plea for the people to trust God today. The words of 23, or sorry, 26, three through four, I think are the heart of this plea. And they're the verses I read a few times already, but they say, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. In short, what he is saying is your trust in God will not fail You can trust him today because he holds tomorrow and he holds the end of the story. These visions of the future are meant to change our heart now. God gives us the end of the story so that we know we can trust him today. Babylon will fall. As we work through the message of each of the five series going through, Babylon will fall, the first in each series. God's timing will come and will be right. This was in the second section. And then we read in the third section, he will right all wrongs. And As we continue, God will establish in peace forever those who trust him. And God will gather people from all tribes and tongues to himself. Each of the five series met their completion here in each section of the third series. We read that all these things will be so. God will right all wrongs. Babylon will fall his timing will be right and he will gather his forever family to be with him. Do you live like it? Is the question that Isaiah was begging and asking the people of his day. It's still a question for us today. Do you live like it? Do you rejoice in it? But do you also plead with Isaiah for the inhabitant of the earth until that day? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this book I thank you for the message that you had for Hezekiah and for Judah then and for us today to trust you because you are a rock that we can trust. You are a rock that will not be moved, that the winds and the tides of time won't change, but that you are Lord of all, that you've already written the end of the story and we can trust you to bring it about and that we can trust you with our day today. And I pray that we would remember that, that we would live like that, and that we would be, as Isaiah, one who calls to the inhabitants of the earth, whoever they are for us, that we have in our influence, in our sphere of influence, but that we would be a light and a testimony to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.